Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player 2 episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Let's dive into the relationship crap. Let's do that. I'm sure we have thoughts here. Yeah. First, kind of not surprising, I suppose, because when we had initially discussed what her response was going to be to this, I think we talked about the probability that she was not going to dig it. Yeah. And yet, in the last chapter, I kind of felt like it glossed over it. And and I think it's – you have this argument between the two, and I think the most striking part of that conversation was where, where she says, half the world already spends every waking moment ignoring reality inside the oasis. We already peddle the opiate of the masses, and now you want to up the dosage. And this is a direct reference to Karl Marx, which I might add is well outside the range of the 1980s and 1970s. But Karl Marx said religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the masses, and he's talking specifically about religion. And the idea here that religion reduced people's immediate suffering and provided them with pleasant illusions, which gave them the strength to carry on. But at the flip of that, is that it prevented people from seeing the class structure and the oppression that surrounded them. Thus, religion prevented socialist revolution, which is what Karl Marx was really pushing for. So I think the idea here is if you can keep people sedated, you can continue to oppress. Shit can continue to get worse. If something cuts you and you don't feel pain, that's a dangerous situation. We are meant to feel pain so we can address it and make it better. And that's true socially as well. And if everybody is satisfied socially, then shit's just going to get worse. And it's going to get worse for the minority of people who can't have their pain set aside or dealt with or distracted from, which means it's going to get a lot shittier for some people as others are going to be completely blind to it. And that's what I think is his, her, her overall warning. That this is going to make people more satisfied with the current situation, and as a result, it'll get a lot worse because people won't be trying to make it better. They won't have a reason to. Thoughts? I mean, it's a fair warning. Yeah. I think we had discussed that originally before the book even came out. Yeah, and 
I guess what struck a chord with me in this is when she was saying, you guys read Og's email. He thinks releasing the ONI is a bad idea too. And to me, this would this should have been like the big red flag for everybody. It's like if Og is saying, don't do this, maybe you shouldn't do it. <laughs> well, because I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like Og is this kind of, he just seems like the, the all-knowing father figure that, you know, that knows best and is like your conscience and doesn't want you to do anything that's going to end up hurting you or other people. So I just feel like his warning should have held more weight. Don't do it. It feels like, and, and this is really the crux of their relationship crumbling after their weekend or their week together, after they completed the contest, after they fell in love with each other. Oh. This is the, the the culmination of their clash after we've circled back around to this huge decision and, and her response to it. And I feel as though there's two worlds here. And one is, do we succumb to the fears of science? Like you, you, what you can do versus what you should do, right? I think we see that today. Like Elon Musk has made mention to the downsides of AI, that if we continue to pursue down the path of technology with AI, we're going to get to a place that we're going to regret. We're going to wish we had never gone down that path. We're going to wish that we had tempered what we should do with what we could do. Or maybe the opposite there, but you get the gist. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think that they should. And in this situation, it, it feels like there are a lot of good arguments for providing it. And the fact of the matter is, is that everyone knows each other because they have immersed themselves almost completely into the oasis. So to have a new technology that immerses you even more completely is somewhat hypocritical unless you've just completely gone technology vegan, which they have not. And they've not even tried this new morsel of technology. You know, it would be as if I went to you and said, you shouldn't eat beef <gasps> while I'm eating pork and chicken over here. And beef is the next big thing. Mm. And I give you all the reasons why beef is just going to be horrible and destructive and bad for you. And you're like, well, fuck you. You're eating chicken and pork. But It would be very different if the, if a person was throwing up the red flag from the high horse of not eating any meat. That's at least somewhat of a more sturdy moral platform. Does that make sense? You may not agree with them, but you respect their fortitude. Yeah, well, I do respect their fortitude. The part that I don't respect is like, well, you've not sworn off your haptic rig. You are still going into the oasis. You're just using a lesser technology to do it, but you're a person. These people are convinced that this new technology is going to make life even worse, and yet it's not like they've pulled themselves out of the current technology. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah, so it, it, I, I suppose I would respect it, if you've got meat eaters here, and somebody's going to tell me don't eat beef. I think I would respect it more if they had tried it, and then could really give me a sound and objective perspective of why I shouldn't have it. So, I mean, I guess, does that mean that you can't speak on something or warn against something without having tried it? 
or no, I don't need to fucking crash an airplane to tell a pilot not to push the stick down. No, 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 no. I, no. I don't. I, I mean, I, I get where you're. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you can say this is an obvious thing, but if you're really going to put some clout behind it, if somebody came up to you and said, "Don't do drugs," and you're like, "Oh, really? Why? Oh, because they're bad. They're horrible for you. They're addictive." Oh, okay. So you've been addicted before? No, no, no. I don't do drugs. Well, then how the fuck do you know? I mean, you might be right. That might be sound advice. But if it's not coming from someone who's at least done something, it doesn't. It doesn't lend a lot of clout to the advice. Let me put it that way. No, I, I hear you, and I think like each situation is going to have a, a different way of addressing those particular concerns about whether or not you've actually experienced said thing or whatever. Or somebody's just like, well, I've inferred from these sources or whatever. So I, I no, I get it. I get it. And the thing is, they have no sources to infer from because no one else is using the technology yet or no one had been using the technology. Other than citing movies that have said, don't do this, <laughs> you know, what did we learn from The Matrix and Sword Art Online? What, have we, uh, what did we learn from those movies? Don't plug your brain into a computer. But again, that, that kind of goes back to fear versus reality. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that was a lame argument, in my opinion. It's like, yes, that you're, if you want to quote a science fiction movie or two or three, that we shouldn't plug our brains into, compu- into computers. Well, I'm sorry, but that's science fiction. Well, it, science fiction is meant to be like morality plays and, and play on our fears, play on our, our concerns. It's meant to put characters into sticky situations. So, you know, Sword Art Online was a light novel where, you know, the protagonist plays through virtual reality worlds and MMOs. Players end up trapped in their gear. It involves uploading their minds to the MMO. It involves different immersive technologies, murder, and a whole mess of other things. So, you know, those are stories that wrap technology into your sort of your classic storytelling, your classic concerns of being human. But that may not necessarily be reality, right? We, we, we might be able to get to a place where AI is super useful, but, but not to that point where AI takes over, which is the fear. And we have stories where AI takes over. We've got iRobot and a number of other movies and whatnot that, you know, this is what happens when robots and computers become too smart. You know, we best not travel down that path. And it's, it's a, don't don't forget short circuit. I wanted that to happen. The benevolent robot. I got hit by lightning, followed a a butterfly out the door. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, he finally got a joke. He realized that you could not reassemble a grasshopper. No reassemble. And, you know, The Matrix is an interesting movie, too, because while it sides on the idea that being in The Matrix is bad, there are a lot of theories where it's not that bad. Yes, the computers won the war, but that reality really wasn't a reality. It was an iteration of reality that the, the characters within were not helping Neo. Neo was an iteration of the one. And that, in fact, Morpheus had gotten a lot of people that he thought were the one killed, including Cypher, who ended up not being the one, and ended up deciding that slavery under Morpheus was worse than slavery under the computers in a realm where he could eat steak. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, 
The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. I said it before and I'll say it again. I'm picking the world with steak. Uh, yeah. I, under that circumstance, I'm, I'm heavily into that argument to a certain extent. I don't mind knowing the truth so long as I it's, – it's kind of like, like – so long as I know the rules and I know it's a game, then I can treat it as a game. And in that sense, maybe that's where that, that level four comes in is if you believe that life is a game – and you play it like a game, you might be more successful than if you played it like it was real. Anyways, beyond that, their relationship takes a, a gargantuous deep dive due to a conflict of personal beliefs. And after a week of pure bliss. Yeah, a whole week. Uh, and the part I thought was really interesting was the quote, we can't be together anymore, Wade. Not when we disagree on something so basic and so important. Your actions today will have disastrous consequences. I'm sorry you can't see that. This feels kind of like our political dynamic. And I don't want to get into politics, but damned if there aren't a lot of people who have had similar sentiments in today's political situation. Yeah, I mean, no, I hear you. We see a lot of this in a different way right now. And maybe this isn't where you were going, but I'm going to take it there anyway. Is that okay. society seems to be creating bubbles and echo chambers where people mm -hmm. only want to talk to people that they agree with. And somebody having a different opinion is just offensive now. So that's where I think you were going. And I kind of see is that why can't they disagree on this and still be together? Be together. Well, I'll give you an example. You know, if you were a rapist and you were like, I think rape is okay. And I was like, I'm sorry. That is a base moral principle that, that I don't want to be associated with, that I don't want to be around somebody that's like that. I can't be around that. I can't be around somebody who thinks that's okay. Is that a reasonable moral break uh, th that could divide two people? Or do you think somebody could be like, yeah, no, I'm I'm totally against rape and that y I know that you think it's okay. Uh, not that you do, but I'm just using something extreme here. But that, you know, we can still be friends because we disagree on this. Do you see the level of disconnect? Well, there, there is, in, in the your extreme example, you know, yes. But they're talking about technology that doesn't have a wide enough user base to know whether or not it's morally, it's not a moral thing. This is all. Yeah, it is. It is. That is a, it is a moral thing. She sees it as a technology that would cause a greater degree of suffering and leading to death. For a large number of people, in her mind, but that's un—that's unproven. It's you know, like it, it would be in it, her that opinion would be inadmissible in a court of law. I, I agree. I get what you're saying because at this moment they're trying to make a a judgment call, and what she sees in comparison to the current state of things is a drug that would have more of an effect, not less, and that that would lead to greater suffering. And Parzival's on the other side. He sees it as something that would alleviate suffering. And they come from two different places, right? He comes from having suffered, from having been poor, from having nothing, and that this technology was his only way out to make that life better. For her, 
she sees it from the perspective of a fairly decent life wherein everyone around her is suffering and that the main cause of this suffering is the oasis. Yeah, so so to me, that just highlights the fact that it's really, this is all about perspective. Yeah. It's not a moral question, it's a perspective difference. And and that it's like that's why like I don't like saying like oh it's something so basic it's like but it's not it's not so basic it's actually kind of complicated and multifaceted and layered and that it's not so simple as saying it's like saying disagreeing on whether or not you need to breathe like no that's basic you need to breathe uh, that is that's pretty darn basic but whether or not to release the technology that's not so basic that's actually a complicated decision to make yeah it is yeah, and they have to think on a larger scale. And when they think on a larger scale, she sees suffering. He sees bringing bliss or enjoyment to life. He sees it as something that it would be an immoral offense if he didn't release this technology for everyone to use. Whereas she sees it as a immoral offense to release that technology given the current state of the world. Yeah, so, so I, don't, I don't think there's anything basic about that choice at all. Well, at scale, it's not basic. I don't know that I said basic. No, no, I, she did. It was, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. We can't be together anymore, not only disagree on something so basic and so important. It's like, I agree, it's important, but basic it is not. Well, the solution's not basic, but I think the concept is. That's a bit like saying, you know, no one should starve. That's basic, right? Human rights. Is the solution basic? Lord, no. But is the concept basic? Yeah, everyone should be able to eat. I mean, it's simple. Yeah. Um, but the solution's not simple. The politics for getting to that place, not simple. But it is, it is a basic concept. They have that divide. They have that sort of crisis. I'd, I'd say that the difference here is that at the very least, while she may absolutely not respect his position, he at least recognizes that her heart's in the right place. He's still an absolute dick to her. Well, and she's completely ignoring him, but he still sort of idolizes her, and, and they even mention that on a, on a good day they see her hopefulness. There may have been a version of this world where they could have disagreed on whether or not to release it, and they wouldn't have broken up. But he did and said some things that doesn't really matter. Oh, yeah. He was a jackass. Yeah, if you want a chapter about how not to talk to somebody that you love, yeah, this is this it. is a good one. Yeah, this is an excellent example of what not to do. Yeah, I mean, boy, what what a fucking idiot, right? And he recorded it, and he fucking recorded it. Oh my god, that's just you, sadistic motherfucker. It's like it's like taking the thing she hates and then putting it on his head and saying, "I'm going to record this so that uh, you know I can revel in the kind of idiocy that you are." It's the worst fucking thing you can do. Like when you're having an argument with your spouse or a family member or whatever. You don't whip out a tape recorder or you know hit record your on your iPhone <laughs> and say, I want to preserve this so that way I can relive this later. It's like, you don't do that. Well, and on top of that, though, he does relive it once a week. Oh. He says it's like it happened the other day because it's as if it, it did happen the other day. He, he, re, he plays the recording over and over so that he has those last moments with her. As bitter as they were, he does have those moments in her presence. And that's sad when your last moments with someone you love that you want to cherish are the worst moments 
that you've got with that person, and you're reliving it in crystal clear fidelity every week. That's sick. That's fucked up. I mean, I think there is a reason why our memory can fade, that parts of it can dissipate, that that we can clear space in our memory, that we can choose not to remember, or it can it can move from our minds. Our brain can decide that it's no longer useful or constructive space. It's so that we don't continue to beat ourselves with it. Like, can you imagine if the worst thing that happened in your life happened to you every single day? You're just reinflicting yourself with that clarity of trauma every single day. That, that's that almost to prove her correct as one of the downsides to this technology is the ability to become obsessed with our mistakes and rather than learn and move on to obsess and relive in high fidelity. Or, you know, get lost in experiencing other people's experiences, which is sure what he admits that, hey, when, when all this happened, it wasn't that big a deal because I can just relive other people's happy moments. That just sounds equally as sick. It is. To a certain extent, there, there is a, an illness called a false memory syndrome. It's wherein you, you're basically creating issues in your life and in the lives of the people that uh, are in your life based on memories for events that didn't occur. They're memories that you've convinced yourself of, that you've drawn in your head, that you've circled over and over again, that you're convinced were real. And in fact, they weren't. And people have been accused of crimes for you know with with people who have generated false memories but now think about this if you're living someone else's memories in high fidelity the highest fidelity at some point when does that become a mental illness where you can't draw the line between your memories and someone else's um maybe <laughs> maybe you know it's an illness I, I, when you have enough of these memories for stored for playback to to last until you're 100 years old and you still keep downloading more. You can't more. tell who's you. You can't tell who what's your memories and what's somebody else's memories. I I have had moments where when I was a more avid book reader where I had a memory or I was talking to somebody, "Hey, you remember that thing?" And they're like, "What thing?" And I'm like, "Oh, nope, nope, nope. That was in a book." That was in a book. I was reading. That was a memory that I that I had from a book. Remember that time when I was in my hideout and I won that contest? Oh, oh that was a book. Oh no! If <laughs> they were more subtle moments, but sure, yeah, you get it. So I, I, I can kind, of, I can see partially the dangers of this. Um, I'm curious to, is to see if those dangers start to flesh out a little bit more. But we're starting to see the examples of the dangers even in the recording of this argument that is the end of his relationship. I do want to bring up one detail in this recollection of his that is bothersome to me. Mm -hmm. That Shoto was listening to the conversation in slight delay through the the Mandarax translator, right? That's uh, okay. in the first few paragraphs of the memory. So okay. in Ready Player One, it is established twice that Shoto speaks Japanese and English fluently. Mm -hmm. So why does he need the translator? I don't know. I, I talk with people that don't speak perfect English all the time, like daily. And they get most of it, but not everything. To quote Ready Player One, 
Dido and Shota lived in Japan. They'd become national heroes there. And I knew that they both spoke Japanese and English fluently. Fluently. And then later on, Akahide had been raised on American movies and television, so he'd grown up learning to speak English and Japanese equally well. Why do you need the translator? Really? Yes. That's our hang-up here? Yes, I'm, I'm very hung up on that. Why not? Maybe got lazy. Ugh, lazy. La- really? Lazy? What do you, why do you think? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. If I know a language fluently, and I'm in a room listening to people also speaking English, because that's their you know, one and only language, why not listen natively as opposed to through a translator? Which we know from the first book isn't always perfect. Mm-hmm. So it just it just seems like a very weird difference from the first book without explanation. Oh, well, you know, as much as he, you know, he could still speak, you know, he still understood English perfectly, but ever since he became this big star in Japan, he decided to get closer to his whatever, you know, his roots and, you know, wanted to listen to things in Japanese. I don't know, some some crap like that. Nothing like that. Look, it's, 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 all right. You want a reason? Okay, please. Because he's, because, because he's rich now, (laughs) because he's not speaking English as much, because he's spending more time speaking his native language when he doesn't have to watch these movies anymore. He's not watching these movies anymore. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to practice the language. And it's like anything else. If you don't practice it, you're going to lose it. So the fact that maybe he's using an interpreter now means that maybe over the past three years, he hasn't spoke a lick of English because he didn't have to. And now he doesn't speak it as fluently as well, he used to. Well, now that would be really interesting. That. If he didn't... It happens. That's interesting. That's an interesting theory. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's it's a if it's a hint of anything, it maybe it's a hint that that becoming rich has made them lazy, has made them less involved, less needing to know English, for example, as a second language, even if he knew it well before. Uh, I have a question. Is it true that if you don't use it, you lose it? I hear that that's true. Yes, if you're just not using it, you're, you're just gonna lose it. Which I suppose is the reason why he does his exercise. I mean, kudos to him for knowledge doing it. Knowledge atrophies just like your body. Oh, yeah. I imagine a language could atrophy the same way. Oh, absolutely. Maybe that's the kind of the, the subtle hint that he threw in there, which is he went from being really sharp, have, having watched so many English movies and learning up on English, to now not having to and being not as sharp. Yeah. Anyway, at least maybe not in that way. So that was just a little hang up of mine, but we can we can move on. I I I'll I will graciously accept your theory. It's, there could be better theories. There might be a subtle reasoning. I that's would be my first guess. Then I challenge the listeners of this podcast to come up with a reason why he needs the translator now. So moving on, moving on, moving on. So. We we have this conflict. We've got we've got two different directions that 
Samantha and Wade are taking to resolve the issues. And I, I thought it was kind of unusual that her solution is her trying to fix a world that she already sees as being in a level of crap. And he's saying this new technology will make it better, yet he's making a lifeboat to get off this rock. And my feeling there was kind of, while I know that they're actually moving in the direction of what they said they wanted in the last book, if you had the confidence that the headset was going to be better for humanity, then why plan B? Uh, maybe he was a Boy Scout. Be prepared. This is a level of get the fuck off the rock prepared. You know, a Boy Scout's motto was also, you know, leave it as you found it, right? You, you don't take garbage. You don't take a wrapper into the woods and leave the wrapper. That was one of the main things is you, you always left nature as you found it. But it was never Parzival trying to repent for his crimes against the earth. It was past generations and their crimes and they were the generation that was suffering from the, the decisions of others exactly so i don't think of it as that at all but i felt a great deal of disappointment in his character when i read this part that he actually built the spaceship i was like oh man you really do suck yeah it's the fortification of him having given up it's it's him definitely saying, I've, I've given up on humanity. Here you go. Here's your final drug. Here's what's going to put you into a sleepy stupor before you die off. And I'm going to exit, and, and good luck with that. Well, I mean, even earlier than even that point, you know, at the end of the first book, when they're, they're sitting in the center of the maze, talk about, like, what they're going to do now, and... He's like, oh, oh we're going we're gonna to feed and save the world just, just like you wanted. It's like, well, I thought you wanted to build this fish. I'm like, yeah, I guess we, you know, we could do that too if it means I can spend the rest of my life with you, blah, blah, all that crap. And it's like you kind of – I don't know. For me, I kind of had this like glimmer of an idea that like he was going to abandon that kind of ridiculously childish bug out idea. And he was going to formally adopt – her idea to just try to save the world that they're living on now. Well, where are you going to go? Where was he going to go? What was his plan? Like, okay, you got a spaceship, you go into space, you're hooked up to your version of the Oasis, which ends up being named Arcadia, Duran Duran reference. But where, where are you going to go? Well, and apparently they can get to Alpha Centauri in 47 years, which is super, super super fast. Did I say Alpha Centauri? I meant Proxima Centauri. So I did a little bit of digging on this the way we do. How fast would you have to go? I don't know exactly how fast, but if Voyager were to travel to Proxima Centauri, Voyager is traveling at 17.3 kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. If it were to travel to Proxima Centauri, it would take 73,000 years. Right. And if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you four and a quarter years to get there. Right. 47 years, you could, I guess you could probably deduce that. You'd have to go approximately 10% of the speed yes. of light. Yes. And what's the speed of light? It's a really big fucking number. So, so I, I guess they've really done a great job at improving the speed of space travel. Yeah. Yeah. So your speed of light is. 299 meters per second. 299 million meters per second. 
So divided by, yeah, divided by 10. It, regardless, it's really fucking fast, and you'd have to slow down too. You couldn't just start at that speed and then stop at that speed. So they technically have to go faster than that. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're using something like ion engines, for example, which basically is a lightweight, low-fuel means of gaining speed, but in a very slow way. You're maybe throwing particles out the back of your engine, but it's not giving you a lot of thrust, but that thrust is speed of light. So it is pushing you along, and you will continue to gain more speed over time until you can go really fast. Not the speed of light fast, but really fast. But you'd still have to slow down halfway. You'd still have to turn around and point at the other direction to slow down. So you'd really have to be going much faster than 10% the speed of light to get there in that period of time. But that technology aside, let's assume they could figure out how to do that shit. To what end? It's not like there's a, a planet yeah. that they're perfectly tuned to that they can go out there and terraform. There could be nothing there. That's the problem we have today. We've got a shitload of people that aren't concerned with the state of the planet today, but they're looking at funding a shitload of money to send people to Mars. Even Elon Musk has floated methods for terraforming Mars over time, like, for example, lighting off nuclear bombs in the North Pole of Mars to evaporate water. But if we could survive there, it's a dangerous place. Let me put it that way. We have not evolved for that level of danger, for that level of environment. You've read The Martian. And evidently, neither has anything else. You know, the perfect place for humans to live is on Earth. If you can't terraform your own damn planet, nothing else is going to do. So I think her criticism of him throwing all this money at the spaceship when he could have been spending it to, like, fix things is actually, I feel like it's valid. Yeah. Now, that being said, all of the remaining members of the High Five and the honorary member of the High Five, Og, have been throwing a ton of money at the Earth's problems for years and doing nothing. I, so I can have criticism about Parzival and his idea of jumping off Earth in a, in a life raft with a bunch of Twinkies. Fine. But the, the flip concern here is you can throw money at a problem, but it's only going to solve the problem for so long as the money lasts. And it's that same concept of I can feed you every fucking day and that's going to be expensive or I can teach you to fish. And then you can figure out how to feed yourself. You can give people a place to live all day long, but at the end of the day, if they don't have a job, if they don't have a means of sustaining themselves – it's just not going to do any good. It's like, what good is having that nice house if you're still only sustaining yourself on food vouchers and things like that? It's like, great, you have this house, but you still can't really take care of yourself any better than you did before. So it's yeah. a change of scenery. It is. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't give people help when they need help. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is, is that... You, you got to treat the disease, not the symptoms. Well, that's fine, but you got to stabilize, right? We can't even begin to treat the disease if if the body is in a critical state. So you have to stabilize. That's rule. That's step number one: stabilize the patient. Step number two is the healing process. How do we move them to being self-sustaining, self-healing? Right. So if a person is without food, without home, without job, without money, that's not stable. We have you have to get them into a place where they're stable. Then you can work with them. Now that their life-threatening needs have been met, now you can work on the sustaining aspect. So 
I think that's important. I think you have to have both parts of that. And you can't do one before the other. But you can't just do one. You can't just, you know, sustain them and then bring them up to a point where they're not at critical level anymore and then say, all right, out of the hospital with you. No healing's been done. They're not able to – they're just going to go back to critical. It's kind of like you get shoulder surgery, you leave the hospital, but then you don't get physical therapy. Yeah, yes. That's a perfect example. You've not really fixed the problem fully. You've just addressed it partially. Um, so I, again, it's that's the side of Artemis's end that I don't see as being very fruitful, or or that's the reason why throwing money at the problem maybe hasn't been helpful. It makes them feel good, but otherwise it's... You're not addressing the problem. You're just addressing... You're bringing them out of critical, but for how long? So... Yeah, that kind of rounds us down to sort of, you know, the the end of the chapter. Yeah, well, we we made it. I mean, they they've gotten to that point now where we we know he still loves her. We know that he respects her. The world finds out about this this escape pod, where the world's richest and most powerful people are like, "Fuck y'all, we're leaving." She's throwing them under the bus and not even. Yeah, they're ba- they're bailing on us. They're be- they're betraying us. That's that's the way she sees it. Yeah, giving two shits about it. I mean, like, I mean, good for her for sticking to her guns, but wow, that's some harsh shit. Yeah, that's that's a uh, super ballsy. So, and then that's kind of where the chapter leaves off. So, I have a lot of predictions, kind of. I suppose I'm glad that we went into detail about their relationship. I wanted that. I'm not sure I want it now. The, the only thing about their relationship that I didn't quite understand as much we kind of skipped over this does og have a pharmacy on his property where are they getting their condoms huh what the fuck they're fucking like rabbits right well they evidently didn't produce anything oh but yet i'll say that we know of i mean they only had a week to kind of go at it and if that if that wasn't quote unquote the week then then nothing else Poor Parzival, he pines over that girl for essentially the whole, the whole first book, and the, you know, and then some. And then he finally gets to be with her in the real world, and he blows it in one week. Well, one week. Yeah. It, if they had both been more mature, then this wouldn't be an issue, and it's not just him. I mean, for her to have given up that quickly to have not given him a rational voice and for him to also not have given her the time of day to consider what she was saying emotionally. I mean, it's it's just a lack of emotional maturity on both sides. So it's, it's kind of cool that they portrayed it like that. Think about it. It's probably both their first relationships, like at least certainly yeah. adult ones. They don't even know how to do that yet. It hit like a bang and then it was over. So. Not only is it their first relationship, they're now business partners. They've they've mm-hmm. gone from either dirt poor or I guess the implication is that she's semi affluent to when you're as rich as they are, it's they, a lot of shit's it's going, going from on. some percent to one percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't even like one percent. This is like point one percent. Percent. So, like by any objective measure, they were destined for failure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, at least that's what he convinces himself of, at least, because he thinks that she starts to see in in one week starts to see the awkwardness that he has socially. 
uh, the, the lack of confidence that he had in, in the business that they now have to undertake and the social responsibility they've got for being in the financial position that they're in. So it, it's the most painful part of the first book is the pining. Yeah. Right? You're just kind of like, ugh, come on, get on with it. I, I get it. You're after the girl and you know, happy endings and shit. But now the beginning of the book is like shooting into the middle of the last one. Yeah. And, and now I'm kind of like, oh, God, okay, get on with it. <laughs> it's only chapter three. <laughs> well, it's chapter zero, 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 one. Yeah, well, whatever. It's, it's unofficially chapter three. Sure. I'm sure it is going to get better. I understand why they had to set this up. If he had to write about how great their relationship was or the kitchen fights that they would have, then that would probably be a shitty book. It would have jumped the shark, proverbially speaking. And we didn't want that. He has to have something to move towards. And and this is a a huge thing that he has to get out of. It's it's quite messy. And it sounds like we're probably whittling down, but there's one other thing that I wanted to touch on. So apparently okay. they decided they were going to pay off the national debt. Okay. So right now, the national debt is somewhere around $27 trillion. Mm-hmm. That seems like a very ambitious thing to have done, right? Like, that's not going to be a small amount of money. What do you think that he was trying to communicate with this? I don't think the technicality of him paying off the national debt is consequential. I think what he's trying to communicate by saying that they did that is more important. What What do you think he was trying to say... I think that to just imply that GSS wrote a big check and you know, basically wiped out their national debt sounds a little unrealistic. But beyond that, I'm very curious what paying off the national debt would actually do. Like, like, like what if tomorrow our national debt was paid off in the United States in 2020? Yeah, doesn't that have an effect on the value of the dollar? I'm sure it would. Yeah, and it would also have an effect on our relationship with other countries. Yeah, so I guess because they pay off the national debt, but we get no other information about anything about that. It's just like, oh, we just paid off the national debt. Yeah, because it's not important. They're just, it's just, it's just intended to say that they did a number of things to try to improve the world. It was one of the long laundry list of things that they did to make the world a better place. The organizations that they created, the people that they helped, the people that they housed at home, the fact that they got rid of IOI, you know, and that they paid off the national debt. It's just a laundry list of, of things that they threw money at to try to make the world a better place. But that at the end of the day, it didn't move the needle much. Yeah, I, I just thought the paying off the national debt seemed implausible. Right. Unless for some reason the national debt, given the situation that society is in at that point, maybe it's not significant because nobody has money to, to let the United States borrow, you know? I, I don't know. I, I'm not an economist. I don't understand all these issues. I can't even theorize. But it just seemed like it's probably so far out of reach to just have any one entity just write a check for that kind of money so simply and it's it's like a footnote well and it appears that there are a lot of reasons why you wouldn't oh you're looking up about the national debt 
Yeah, there's an article under the street, Personal Finance, Seven Reasons Why We Shouldn't Pay Off the National Debt, that we have a sort of worldwide dependence on national debt, that, that it's, a, it's a bit of a trade. It's a bit of a dependency sort of thing. There are a number of reasons maybe why we wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, and, and, I, and my guess is that depending upon you know, which economist you're talking to, they're gonna, you know, one person's going to say, oh, we should definitely have no debt. Or another person is going to say, we definitely should have debt. I guess the question is how quickly you should do it. Like a business can go out of business with a 10% decrease in growth as easily as they might go out of business with a 10 to 15% increase in growth. It is possible to blow your business out of the water by too much success too fast. Yeah. Just as it is possible for your business to find itself in an enormous amount of debt and in a slump where you've lost 10% of your business, unable to pay your bills. Imagine it, like, even in a day like today where you bought a restaurant and you know you have to have filled your restaurant to quarter capacity every day to meet your bills. A loss of 10% when you're barely making a quarter of capacity a day is substantial. So, you know, to quickly change the uh, environment like that would probably have a devastating effect on a number of places. But I, I don't think that was the point of mentioning it. I think just the simple point was that they were just trying to do good things. Yeah. And that was one of the good things they did that would be really huge. Yeah. And, and I guess like what struck me about it was that th like there's a possibility that having done that could have actually made things worse, but it's not really touched upon. And yeah, it's not. Yeah. Although it'd be interesting if they had touched upon it by saying, you know, some of their financial endeavors had actually made things worse, which would kind of counter the argument that providing the O&I would be the only thing that they had tried to do that would make things worse. See what I'm getting at? Yeah. Because then you could say, well, that's not the only – well, we did this other thing over here and it made shit worse. How do you know this will make it worse? Yeah. You know, but they didn't. It, it was just a part of – it was a laundry list of, sh of good deeds financially good deeds that they did. Yeah, seemingly good deeds. Like, seemingly. Why is there something in the future where they're going to go back to that? Like in a future chapter they're going to be like I wish we hadn't done that. <laughs> uh not to my recollection. Or, or he points to her and says you paid off the national debt that left a bazillion people with worthless money. Now people are, are, are they're knitting quilts at a dollar bills. It's insanity. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's really it. I don't even think it comes up ever again. It was just one of those one of those details that I just wanted to look into more and understand. Like, not that I'm a huge fan of having a ever increasing amount of national debt, but I do recognize that economies are are essentially organisms and. Just snapping your fingers and taking away the debt is going to have consequences. Well, it's the reason why animals go extinct. When their environment changes too quickly for, for them to keep up, they go extinct. Period. That's just how extinction works. So it, it just seemed to me like it was something that was like their heart was in the right place, but perhaps it was something that wasn't executed in the best way possible that could have actually helped perpetuate the situation that everybody's in. Yeah, or the number is so big that it just would be seemingly unreasonable considering that they only received billions of dollars. Yeah, that, I mean, trillions. That, I mean, that's that's kind of my point is that like yeah. how much 
could that national debt have been? I mean, if we're at $27 trillion now, the likelihood is that that number is going to just increase because we're probably never going to pay down the debt. So it's going to be, we're not talking billions of dollars. We're talking trillions still. Right. It's, it's again, I, I think it was just an, an unrealistic, uh, given current day situations, an unrealistic thing to say. But I, I think it was just case in point, this company makes lots of money. And it makes enough money to pay off whatever the national debt was at the time. And that was a good thing. Full stop. Yeah. In the so, story. So I think, you know, you just kind of bucked up saying like, okay, well, in this idyllic world, it, 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 it would have had positive consequences. But, you know, there was all these other problems. But they, but they tried. They get, yeah, tr- they get a participation trophy. <laughs> We have reached the end of the chapter. Is there anything that you el- you wanted to touch on before we uh, sign off? Nope. I-, I think I'm good. I'm ready. I'm primed for the next chapter. I'm excited to uh, read it. Oh, yeah. Here's- you get to read the next chapter. You excited? Uh, should I be excited? Should I be excited? I mean, you get to read is the it- next chapter. Is it better than the last chapter? I don't know. I haven't read... Oh. <laughs> what? I, 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 I love the, how you're reading it anew with me because you've already read it so long ago. Uh, well, that's kind of the, what it is. Like, like <laughs> I read it a month ago. I don't remember the next chapter. There's <laughs> something about this guy named Percival. pain in the ass. And he's got, for Petunia. And he's got this <laughs> this ex named Sammy or Sandra or no. This is one of the differences between doing this with a book that I've read a thousand times versus one that I've read once <laughs> is that I know the first book relatively inside and out. Mm-hmm. This book, I don't yet. <laughs> well, fair enough. Let's come the, come the end of this podcast. Uh, you will have read it many times. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Well then let's wrap it up. I'm excited for the next chapter. Uh, and until the next chapter, this is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we will catch you then. Thanks all. See ya. I mean, the thing is, like... They're both versions, so like, like, how good was it ever going to be in that one week? Good enough. Better than online, I suppose. Better than the Uber Betty, I imagine. I would hope so. Poor Pars will probably have performance anxiety. Yeah, I could see him putting the headset on and uh, opening up some of those files that he left alone before and then taking off his headset and going, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you mean it can uh, last for more than 17 seconds? Wow. Hmm. Oh, that. Oh. Oh. Something so basic that we don't agree on. Like, hmm. where should it go? <laughs> <laughs> How long should it last? Who's really getting the most out of this relationship? Hmm. Oh, she can orgasm too. Ah, maybe, yeah. That's a horrible conversation. Yeah, I know. We're going to cut that out. (laughs)